0: Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey everyone, it's Dan Embender here. It is our distinct pleasure and honor to bring you this rare opportunity to share moments with a cardio nerds luminary whose visionary ideas disrupted the status quo and shifted the paradigm and the care of patients with heart failure in this multidisciplinary part series led by Drs. Shirlina Bobi and Mark Belkin from the University of Chicago. We get to learn from the one and only Dr. Milton Packer about the evolution of the neurohormonal hypothesis and discuss a host of other topics that you will most certainly love to hear about. So, buckle up and fasten your seatbelts and join us for part two The Secret to Happiness, The Aha Moment, and The Birth of the Neurohormonal Hypothesis. Remember, CardioNerds is an independent, fellow founded educational platform with a mission to democratize cardiovascular education. The views expressed here do not reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Help others find us by reading and reviewing the show. And with that, let's get right on into it and hear some more from Dr. Milton Packer.
1: Here's the best advice I can give anyone who's who's starting out. Best advice is, please take risks. Do not do what is expected. Do not... Do a study that confirms what people know. Do something that upsets people. If you don't do something that upsets people, then all you're doing is doing something that makes it really easy for everyone to ignore who you are.
2: And I'm assuming that um, being upsetting to the spouse doesn't count because uh, if so, I'd have an illustrious career ahead. Let me, <laughs> let me, let me I,
1: I have to say something about that. Right. You don't upset your spouse. That, that's very <laughs> important. Very, that, that, you know, big asterisk there. Very, very key, key. But I, I, I have to say something because it, you, your question prompted my wife was in academic medicine. And she was far more accomplished than I ever was. My wife was the founder of Mammalian Autophagy, and she was a member of the National Academy. She was a Howard Hughes investigator. When we moved to Dallas, they recruited her. I was the trailing spouse. They needed to find a job for me. They did make me a department chair. I was very grateful about that. But that's beside the point. The The truth is that she was just unbelievably amazing. And I, I was just, I was the president of of her fan club. She was the most amazing person in the world. And it is so important to make sure that your spouse, your significant other, just knows that They have all of your support, not a little bit, not 80%. They have a thought that you are so behind them in everything that they do. It is the secret to happiness at every possible level. It is really important. So if anyone forgets that, they are destined to pay a, a heavy price don't ever forget it. It's really important. Now, you didn't expect to get marital advice from me today. So that's bizarre.
2: So the funny thing, though, is that we actually were going to ask you for marital advice. You just somehow read our minds. You were going to ask me for marital advice? Yes, we were. We were going to ask you. We literally use the word trailing spouse because we knew you famously moved from Columbia to UT Southwestern in 2004. Did our research. Yes. I specifically actually was going to ask you about how, you know, pretty often the role of trailing spouses is relegated to the women. And so especially, you know, at the time in 2004, it was something that was stood out to me that you were the one who trailed after your spouse. Oh, that! But
1: that was the easiest decision in my life. I'll, I'll tell you the story. In 1992, Beth and I were married and she was a ending her fellowship at Johns Hopkins. And I said, you know, it would be nice if you uh moved to New York. I just got a job at Columbia. And uh, you know, uh we could get we could get married and start a family and um it it would be really, really nice. And she said, Well, you know, I I don't have a job in New York. I said, Um, let me ask around and and see what I can do. And The chair of medicine at the time, Mike Weisfeld, who's wonderful, decided that that she was okay. And he gave her a startup package, ready? Of $20,000. That was the whole startup package. The whole startup package. I thought that was unbelievably embarrassing. But she came home. And she said, I got a startup package of $20,000. I said, Do you know how small that is? And she said, You are going to see what I'm going to do with this $20,000. I said, Okay. I said, You want to take this offer? She said, I already have. I said, There is there's no offer here. I'll tell you what, if you take this offer and move to New York and we start a family, here's my commitment. You move to New York because of me, the next career move, I'm moving wherever you want to go. So in 2004, Beth got this great offer from the University of Texas Southwestern and uh, she said, you know, this is really an unbelievable opportunity for me, but I, I have to tell you a small detail. It happens to be in Dallas. And I said, Dallas, I've lived in New York and Philadelphia all of my life, and I've always assumed that the country ended at the Hudson River. So Dallas is in Texas, right? Wow, that's that's far away. She said, I've been there. It's really nice. I said, okay. I told you I made I made a promise. I told you I would keep it. So the answer is, you want to move to Dallas? We're moving to Dallas. She said, What are you gonna do? I said, I'll figure it out. I went to the dean. And I said, I, um, uh, I want to talk to you about, about joining the faculty. And uh, Dean said, uh, well, what do you do? I said, well, I'm a cardiologist. I'm a clinical trialist in heart failure. And at that point in time, the chairman of medicine said, well, we, you know, we have too many cardiologists as it is. I don't think we, we need any more cardiologists. Um, I said, okay, I, I'll tell you what, I'll start a new department where I'll train people to be clinical investigators across all disciplines. And we started the Department of Clinical Sciences. Believe it or not, we got over $100 million in NIH funding. It was amazing. But it had nothing to do with cardiology. I took a sabbatical from cardiology for 11 years. And I I did it because, you know... I couldn't imagine making a different decision. It was the best thing for Beth. And if it was the best thing for Beth, it was the best thing for me.
2: That's beautiful, Dr. Packer. Thank you so much. And, you know, it's interesting that you say that, that you took 11 years off of cardiology, but it still went on to become the father of the neurohormonal hypothesis of heart failure. Um, so kind of transitioning into that, can you tell us whether there was a specific moment or lecture or study and made you start thinking that there was really more to heart failure management than just the hemodynamic adjustments. What was your aha moment that made you realize that maybe the neurohormonal hypothesis had some merit?
1: Oh well, it's because I kept on putting catheters into people and making their cardiac output go up and where wedge pressure go down and they weren't feeling better. So, um gee, uh, cardiac output was supposed to be everything. You made the wedge pressure go down, people were supposed to feel better. Well, I could do that with drugs, and people didn't feel better. And then uh, ACE inhibitors got introduced, so I started doing hemodynamic measurements with ACE inhibitors, and guess what? ACE inhibitors did not increase cardiac output very much, and it didn't lower wedge pressure very much, but people felt better. And I thought, wait a minute. So I can make the hemodynamics better and people don't feel better. But if I use this drug called an ACE inhibitor, the hemodynamics don't get better and people feel better. Uh, I think there's something wrong with hemodynamics. But that was just, you know, ACE inhibitors. The real, real enlightening part was when I first started using beta blockers in heart failure. Now, remember, this is very late 1980s, early 1990s. Beta blockers were contraindicated in heart failure. Carl Svedberg had published an open-label study about 10 years earlier. No one in the United States thought that beta blockers had any role, and the uh, whole idea was to get people off beta blockers. And so we 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 started uh, a trial of um, of beta blockers, and this had a, a a great a great story behind it. The person who spearheaded that trial was someone named Henry Crum. That may that name may or may not be familiar to many people. Henry turned out to be one of the leading clinical trialists internationally. Henry walked into my office and he said, uh, gee, I'd like to work with you. And I said, where are you from? He said, well, I'm I'm from Australia. And I said, Henry, um, it's really nice. I don't get too many visitors from Australia. Can you, um, why are you here? And he said, well, I read your papers and I really think I'd like to spend some time with you. Henry had his own funding which was very, very good because I had no money to pay him. And um, Henry came in and he said, I, I want to do something dramatically different. So I said, Henry, how about beta blockers and heart failure? He said, okay, I guess we could do that. We designed the protocol, double-blind placebo-controlled trial, of carvedilol in 59 patients with hemodynamics before and after. Here was the great thing about carvedilol. When you first gave it to patients with heart failure, nothing good happened. You made hemodynamic measurements and heart rate went down a little. Cardiac output didn't change. Eh, wedge pressure didn't change very much. But when you brought them back four months later, everything was dramatically better. And when you did that on placebo, they didn't get better. At the time, this was the largest double-blind placebo-controlled trial with beta blockers, all done at a single center. Henry spearheaded that, and uh, we took the results to the sponsor, and they decided to make a big investment in beta blockers in heart failure. That was the beginning of the US Oil trial program. It was the beginning of Copernicus. And uh, it didn't take rocket science to say, well, look, ACE inhibitors work, beta blockers work. What do these two drugs have in common? Well, they both block neurohormonal mechanisms. So now you have the neurohormonal hypothesis. And at the time, remember, the world was a hemodynamic world. So the uh, hypothesis synthesized the available data and said, you know, it's not a hemodynamic disease. It has hemodynamic abnormalities, but it isn't driven by the hemodynamic abnormalities. It's driven by the neurohormonal abnormalities.
0: It's very interesting and very important work that you did and, and synthesized and put together. It was interesting to hear how it was some of the failed response of alpha blockade and the hemodynamic treatments that led you down this road. And I kind of want us to bring up that in addition to all of your many positive trials with carvedilol, with Paradigm HF, with Emperor reduced, that there were some notably neutral trials. Goodness gracious, how amazing was that? If you're like me and want to hear more, fear not. We have four more parts of this journey through space and time. Next up, part three negative trials, a second chance, and a paradigm shift. Stay tuned. Alrighty then, time to make a like an S2 and split. <coughs>